Comunidad, welcome to our cultura, a Radio Teco podcast by El Tecolote, San Francisco's bilingual newspaper since 1970. My name is Sedaena Salinas. I'm a volunteer at El Tecolote, and I'm excited to be today's host. In this episode, I talk to Anne Evers-Hitz, a fifth-generation San Franciscan. Anne has had a long interest in San Francisco's history and its legends. In this episode, we talked about what it was like growing up in San Francisco the iconic ferry building, and various department stores. Anne also talked about San Francisco City Guides, an organization offering free tours of San Francisco, where she's currently a volunteer. She's the author of several books about San Francisco, such as San Francisco's Ferry Building, Lost Department Stores of San Francisco, and Emporium Department Store. A quick note, this episode was recorded two years ago, on February 2020. Anne Evers Hits, welcome to the show. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about various topics about San Francisco. First, I want to begin with your upbringing, though, since you're a fifth generation San Franciscan. So I'm really curious do you know why your family moved here and where they moved from? Yes, I do, because when I was researching one of my uh, books, I found out a lot about my great-great-grandfather. His name was Frederick Wilhelm Dorman, and he came from Schleswig-Holstein in Germany. Actually, that area has kind of gone back and forth between different, uh, you know, Germany and um, France and Austria. <laughs> But um, he came in seek seeking a better life in uh 1862, and he originally came to Ohio, where he had a relative, and the uh, legend is that he didn't like what he saw there as far as some um, slavery things, and so he came west. Um, he came uh, via Panama, which was quite uh, challenging at that time, because you had to cross on burrows and there was, or donkeys, and there was quite a bit of disease, like yellow fever and things, but uh, people came that way or by wagon train, but he came via Panama. This was before the Transcontinental Railroad. So he came for a better life and he started a small crockery business in the East Bay and then got involved with businesses here in San Francisco, uh, which led to his involvement with the Emporium, which we can talk about later. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And yeah, we'll definitely talk about that later on. I want to focus a bit more on your experience growing up here in San Francisco. What were some of the places that you would go to as a kid? Well, one place that I wish still existed, but it uh, just isn't wasn't meant to be, was Playland at the beach. Way out at Ocean Beach was a big amusement park complex that was actually built in the 1920s. And uh, it had a big roller coaster and all sorts of things. And our parents would just give us a couple of bucks and say, bye, have fun. 
And I also used to take ice skating lessons at uh, Sutro Baz, which was an ice skating rink until it burned down in the 60s. But that was a lot of fun. That was a Victorian building. But as a kid, you just took everything for granted. Um, now that I look at the Sutro Baz, I think, wow, that was an ice skating rink? It's quite a complex. Uh, where else did we visit? I mean, it's all, it's, I didn't know any other place. Um, I wish that I hadn't been as young as I was during the Haight-Ashbury heyday, but I was only about 11 or 12, and so I wasn't going over to the Haight by myself. <laughs> but uh, there was a lot going on there. Can you talk a bit about the Haight-Ashbury heyday? Well, in the late 60s, uh, it was really at the forefront of the so-called hippie movement. Uh, and so there were a lot of people protesting the war and um, was pot smoking and, and all that. But I was just I was just too young. It just didn't really occur to me to go there by myself. My friends were a little, well, you know, when you're a preteen, you're sort of insular. You're just hanging out with your friends. And I guess we could have all gone, but we were uh, sort of sticking to our, uh, in our own neighborhood. Yeah. So you would say growing up, you would spend a lot of time outside with oh, friends? Yeah. and playing in the Presidio. And I grew up near the Presidio. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty easy time, although it was a little tumultuous. I, had, I grew up with three brothers, and... Uh, San Francisco in the 60s was, was, there was a lot going on. So they, we were, uh, our parents were kind of keeping an eye on <laughs> what we were doing and who we were doing it with. Yeah, um, but it all, we all survived to tell the tale. And we used to amuse my mother with stories of what we were actually doing that she didn't know about. <laughs> but she's all pr proud of us. She's proud of how we turned out. So it, it's all past history. You are very interested in history, in particular in the history of San Francisco. You've written several books about it. Why are you very interested in San Francisco? I just, I've always been a history buff. I uh, didn't major in, major in it in college. I was, I'm a Berkeley graduate and I majored in English. But I just always like it as a window into the past and I find it so fascinating. Um, how people lived and what they did. So um, the idea, I kind of was at a, a, in a transition point with my business. I've always done corporate work and I thought I'd always wanted to write a book. And I saw this series of these hyper-local books put out by Arcadia Press and I thought, well, I can do one of those. And then I thought back to my great-great-grandfather, I thought, well, Maybe they'd be interested in one on the department store that he co-founded. And one thing led to another, and I got the contract. Um, but I just loved uh, digging into people's lives. Um, like when I walk down Market Street now, and I, I think of all the pictures I've researched, people 150 years ago were walking down that same street, and now we're just in slightly different clothes. But there we are. I thought about the exact same thing yeah. when I was reading your fairy building book, mm -hmm. just seeing them, and I'm like, the fairy building is still there, and the street, right. and 
but there was it was in great danger of being torn down at, in at one point but we we don't need to go there now yes let's start talking about some of your books one of them is titled san francisco's fairy building and the other one is emporium department store right both of these books they start talking about this period of prosperity that came with the gold rush in the late 1940s and you mentioned entrepreneurs came, migrated to the city. Can you talk about this time? Sure. I mean, prior to the discovery of gold in 1849, San Francisco was just a uh, sleepy little harbor. And the discovery of gold changed everything. It was the greatest migration of people that the world had ever seen. And this city was pretty much overwhelmed. Uh, The port was extremely chaotic, which is why they needed a ferry building. But a lot of people came seeking their fortunes. And to tell you the truth, most of the fortunes that were made were not in gold. They were in services to the people who ended up settling here. Many of the gold miners went home disappointed. There were a few, of course, that made enormous fortunes, especially like in the silver market and things like that, or silver mining. But um, many of the fortunes, uh, like Ghirardelli or APG and Inni with Bank of America, were made by serving the increased population that was here. So um, there was a great era of prosperity. There were many, many people from many different countries here. A lot of Germans, um, French. There was a huge French community, um, Jewish, and there was a there was a real sense of um, there wasn't as much prejudice as there was on the East Coast because everybody was here together and it was kind of a level playing field. Yeah, because like you mentioned, it was a sounds like a small town. You describe it mm -hmm. as Sleepy Harbor, so everyone right all came and same objectives. Right, and and the German community was very strong. They took care of each other. They had these benevolent societies, which um, my great-great-grandfather was involved with. Um, and it was just a, it was a, a very interesting, fast-growing place uh, with a lot of opportunity. Was there also a Hispanic community at that time? Of course. I mean, there were uh, the, the, before the gold rush, uh, the Presidio and everything, mm -hmm. you had Spaniards and, and Mexicans. But okay. it wasn't quite as much as a... Uh, a force as the other uh, European immigrants. Let's talk about your research in the ferry building. What what have been some of the things that you found particularly interesting? Well, it was fascinating, uh, the tumultuous history of the building. It When it was first built, it was, it was a building to rival the transit stations of Europe. I mean, it was really as big and beautiful as Milan, Paris, London, and that's what the city fathers really wanted. And in its heyday, it was the second busiest transit station after Charing Cross in London. It was extremely busy. Uh, anybody who came to San Francisco, unless they came from the south, but most people came via rail to the East Bay and their tickets included a ferry ride to San Francisco. So the uh, rail companies, including Southern Pacific, who was very powerful, uh, rented slips 
the the births at the ferry building, and um, this was part of their business. So that building was a major, major force for many years until cars became the transportation mode of choice, and the two bridges were built, 1936 for the Bay Bridge and 1937 for the Golden Gate Bridge. And that started the decline of ferry ridership and ferry lines. And it really wasn't until um, the early 2000, uh, 2004 when the building was remodeled, re- renovated that it came back into its own. And we had the uh, Embarcadero Freeway in there. So mm-hmm. there was, it's just, that's what fascinated me. It was its, it was at its height and then it, uh, really declined, and now it's back. What was the time period of its initial height? Uh, it was built, it was opened in 1896, and so right through into the thir- 1930s, it was, and it was damaged very little in the 1906 quake. So they used to have uh, rail lines, the streetcars would come down Market Street, circle around, and come right back out. And you could you could take a streetcar from your home in the East Bay, get on a ferry, come to San Francisco, get on another streetcar in way less time than it takes us to go across the bridges at rush hour. It was a very uh, green way to travel mm. <laughs> and time and and time efficient. So uh, I'm glad to see the ferries are back in in vogue. As the podcast of the community newspaper El Tecolote, we think hearing from you is important. So please leave us a comment, rating, and share our podcast to other members of the community. Thank you. The ferry building during its uh, down years what really was, looked like it was going to signal its uh, demise was the building of the Embarcadero Freeway in 1959. And the thinking in that era, this is post-World War II, was that um, raised freeways all through the city were a great idea. Uh, and then they had something called the Freeway Revolt, where um, a lot of people signed a petition saying don't build anymore, and so the whole program was not completed. But the uh, Embarcadero Freeway was, and it totally cut the building off from the rest of the city. The whole port was in decline, and it's generally accepted that that whole project was um, misbegotten. Uh, and But then the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake damaged the freeway enough that they well, they had to make a decision whether to repair it or tear it down. And after many, many, many meetings and many plans, they tore it down. And they rethought the ferry building as the food emporium of locally sourced food, and it uh, has been a great success. But it wasn't a straight path to get there. And when they were considering building the... The freeway, some people were not happy about it, right? I, I, You know, the impression I got is that people sort of weren't paying attention, and then they went, oh, my gosh, 
And uh, but then the the thought was, if we don't have the freeway, the trans the the traffic's going to be so bad because it used to just take you right into North Beach, and then the, and then they were going to continue it into Golden Gate Park and connect it to the Golden Gate Bridge. So it was going to be sort of these raised freeways all over town. Uh, but when it came down, that was considered a good thing, especially when the whole port sort of came alive again. And people can get an idea of what this looked like by seeing some of the photographs in your book. Right, and the and the uh, Ferry Building's website, too, has some old photos. Uh, but the building, during its uh, low period, it was used as office space. There was something called the World Trade Club in there. And it just had a hard time having a purpose. And there's um, some drawings from city uh, plans in the 60s to completely redo it with these two very tall uh, skyscrapers in its place, which just makes no sense at all on uh, land that's actually Bay Phil in earthquake country. So, but that was just the thinking at the time, and it's good it didn't get done. What do you think of its purpose now, the fact that, you know, It seems market... very successful. The office space is very high-end, and that was, that was really not a straight path either, um, because when they were in the middle of its renovation was when 9-11 happened, and we were in a recession, and so I think... I think they were keeping their fingers crossed that they'd be able to fully lease it because the economy was uh, a little shaky. Uh, and they were looking at Seattle's Pike Market. I think it's Pike, Pike, Pike's, Place. Pike, Pike Place as a example, but that's a little uh, more low end. This is a little higher end, but it seems to me I, you don't see that many empty storefronts. I did notice one closed place the other day, but it's it seems like it's been fully rented, and and both tourists and locals go there. So I, I think it's I think it's met its goals. At the beginning of the interview, you were talking about your great great grandfather right. Frederick, and then you mentioned he helped build the Emporium department right. store, which no longer stands here. No, but. it doesn't. It, it, the, the store was, it was lasted 100 years. It was first founded in that building um, as a, a, a group of small stores that were all individually managed by the store owners. And that went broke in a year. So he came in with some partners and um, also merged with another store called the Golden Rule Bazaar and uh, said that centralized management would make it work. And it did. Uh, and they really carved a niche for themselves uh, aimed at the middle class shopper. Up around Union Square, you had the high-end stores. You had City of Paris, um, iMagnon, the White House, and that's those were more the French fashion kind of things. And the Emporium was really aimed at middle class. Um, and I have met so many people who have such fond memories of that store. Everybody went to the Christmas rides on the roof. Uh, but they, they definitely uh, kind of offered a lot of different things to people, but they weren't 
saying that they were all French fashions and for the very wealthy. On what area of the city was it located? It was right there uh, on Market Street. And the reason that was different is that the thinking used to be anything south of the slot, it's called, on Market Street, was in a lower-end district and wouldn't be successful. And the slot is the streetcar, the rail slot. But um, that was just the thinking, but they made it work. And it was 100 years uh, till eight, till 1996, and um, they expanded very rapidly in the 50s and then had some cash problems. And uh, the 89 earthquake didn't treat the chain well, and they finally closed. One thing I found interesting is this store was very important, like you're saying, for the middle class. And we still have bits and pieces of it, even today, for example, at the Westfield Mall, right? Right. Well, when they did the big renovation, there was a lot of um, back and forth. I think there was even a lawsuit about preser some preservation. So, like down in the in the lower food court, they, they kind of used the big E... Uh, logo and some of the windows and the dome is preserved although I think the dome looks a little different but it may have been sort of I don't know added to for mm -hmm. earthquake purposes uh, but um, the dome at Westfield Mall right Right, the dome at Westfield Mall uh, but that's what the Emporium was known for its dome and its center court which had a big bandstand where people we had a, a tea uh, cafe on the top, and there was an orchestra that played. So you could go down there and have tea, and it was it was a different era. Women women often didn't work outside the home, and they had more leisure time, and they would go down. They could leave their little boy to get his hair cut, and they could go have tea with a friend, or go uh, listen to the orchestra and dance. Just a very different era. And we're talking a lot about your book, Emporium Department Store. You have another book coming up titled Lost Department Stores of San Francisco. Right. Can you give a sneak peek on this? Uh, the publisher approached me about, and asked for some other ideas, and I said, well, I could do a book that goes into six of the stores. Uh, and it was a fascinating uh, research project because it's really about immigrants. It's really about stories about people coming here to make their way. So the six stores I covered um, were City of Paris, which was started by a French family, um, White House, which was started by Raphael Weil, who was from Alsace-Lorraine, um, I. Magnan, which is the Magnan family from Germany. Uh, Joseph Magnan, started by one of their sons. Um, Gumps and the Emporium. And Gumps was a uh, German family as well. So, uh, but it's just fascinating all the stories about them getting their start. Like Marianne Magnan, her 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 first business, she was quite a seamstress, and she just sewed beautiful, beautiful baby clothes and lingerie, and then they just took off from there, and they were extremely entrepreneurial. Uh, 
and they gave back to the city a lot too. So it was it was fun learning all about these people. What are some of the ways in which they would give back to the city? Well, um, I Magnan was a big supporter of the um, various AIDS initiatives in the 80s because, well, AIDS was just decimating uh, uh, whole communities in the city, and they raised a lot of money. And and they they just were extremely charitable, and that's one way of keeping your name out there, but they they really did do a lot of fashion shows, and they were always open to doing, helping nonprofits raise money. Are there department stores that have been around for a while that are still here? Well, it's interesting because um, I wasn't going to include Gump's at first in the book when I was coming up with the proposal because they were still in business. But then they closed at the end of 2018. But then (laughs) at, let's see, this is February now. So at the end of 2019, I saw a release saying they had opened a pop-up store. So someone had bought the brand and was kind of trying to see what kind of market there would be because they had a very distinctive um, style. But they said they didn't want to rent you know, ongoing space because they said San Francisco's street situation mm-hmm. was not favorable. So Gumps is still kind of out there a little bit, but there's other stores that are hanging in there. Um, retail in general is having continues to have challenges, to say the least. I mean, these stores folded for various reasons, but it was mainly uh, changing shopping patterns. And women, this is the 60s and 70s and 80s, and women being in the workforce and not as interested in designer fashion. These days, it's the internet. Uh, But Macy's just uh, said it's laying off. It's closing 125 stores. Uh, Nordstrom's hanging in there. Nordstrom has got a pretty good digital strategy. I'm not a retail expert per se, but I just sort of watch it now based on what I learn. But it's in flux. Uh, Malls are really hurting, really hurting. And Sears is barely there. Yeah. Just curious, what was Gums? Gums was a um, specialty store, really. And they became very well known for Asian goods they you could get jade there you could get they'd have whole rooms with beautiful uh japanese furnishings they had their own uh uh, let's call it decorator workshop where they could make anything you wanted and but they're real so design was everything especially under richard gump his motto was good taste costs no more so that was uh, when he took over in the 40s. That was his big push that it, it, everything had to be beautifully designed and accessible. But they, they really, when one got married in the 80s, you, many of us, it was assumed you would go to Gump's mm-hmm. and register for your china and your silver because that's what they did. And that's where your mother's friends would assume that that's where they'd buy you your presents. <laughs> so it was a tradition. It was, it was very, tra- very traditional, in- very traditional. And um, 
I don't even know if people register anymore. I mean, I think they register on Etsy and Crate and Barrel and things like that. But in, in those days, you wanted a, a full set of china and silver and crystal to set your pretty table. It was just a different era. And they were very knowledgeable staff there. I had a chance. One thing that was really fun was uh, I found quite a few former employees and I was able to interview them for the book. And they just had lots of good stories. I want to talk now about San Francisco City Guides because you're very involved with this. Can you explain what it is? City Guides is a program of the San Francisco Public Library, and we give walking tours all over San Francisco. We have over 300 guides. There's about 60 different tours. They're free, and it's a really fun organization to be involved with. Uh, we train about 40 to 50 new guides a year, and they learn a lot about San Francisco history, and their website shows tours all the way from Land's End out in the western part of the city uh, to the Ferry Building. But there's uh, lots of um, specialty walks, stairway uh, walks, uh, small neighborhood walks. And then there's uh, the Japanese Tea Garden and the Golden Gate Bridge and Coit Tower. And people do it because they love it. This is, uh, we do ask for a donation at the end, but it's not for us. It's to keep the website going. So um, it's, I learned a lot and I like the people and I really like giving the tours because I meet people from all over the world or I meet locals. I've had, I had a group of women once who were uh, all just retired and they were trying to take every city walk there was, every city guide walk. And that's cool. Or I get a couple who's here for three days from wherever, Des Moines. So it's, it's a lot of fun and um, it's a good way to get to know the city. What have been some of the reactions that you get from people that are taking this tour? The tours? I think they react like I did the first time I took one, especially if you grew up here. I call it slow travel in that you often don't stop to look at things. And I mean, like I've taken the tour of the Castro and, and these guides point out the differences in architecture and the little pocket parks All these things that I just drive past because I'm in a hurry. But there's so much history uh, that if you have someone to point it out to you, it just gives you a whole different perspective. And it's the same thing with the ferry building. Um, you know, you get to go upstairs in the nave and you learn about why the nave is the way it is and what the tile work represents in the Great Seal. Um, so it's, it's just, it's a way to really uh, learn more in depth about things that you kind of take for granted that's yeah, from exactly. a local perspective yeah yeah that was my experience before moving here I mm -hmm. read about the city there were a few things that I didn't know that I found some spark of amazement mm -hmm. uh, for example like Levi's started here and the logo for Muni or public transportation that person also designed the Levi's logo. So it's like... Right. That's that's probably um, that brand company. I forget his name. Uh, yeah. The one who, whose offices were in a, a boat on the ferry. Yeah, on the, exactly. On the port. But uh, it's it's sk skipping my mind now, but... Yeah, I just find it amazing just... No, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, little things. Maybe I just like the facts. I mean, learning all these inside kind of things. Well, Anne, thank you for thank coming you. on the show. That was fun. 
I, I like this. It's uh, it's fun to talk about it and hope I see you on a city guides tour. Yes, okay. definitely. As the podcast of the community newspaper El Tecolote, we think hearing from you is important. So please leave us a comment, rating, and share our podcast to other members of the community. Thank you.